Trace Thompson took it about himself to refine some things. And I even studied some of his swings before he, when he got traded, I'm like, let me see what happened with this guy. And I'm, I'm looking at his swings in AAA and I'm looking where he's hitting home runs. And I'm like, wow, he is really, really staying inside the baseball and driving the ball and getting more backspin. Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we're joined by Dodgers broadcaster Jose Moda to get insights into how the Dodgers take players like Trace Thompson, Tony Gonsolin, and Evan Phillips and max out their talent, and what makes the Dodgers so good defensively. With it being Hispanic Heritage Month, Jose also shared a story about Roberto Clemente and talked about some of the game's top Hispanic stars and leaders. Then we go back to the minor leagues, Washington Nationals prospect Jake Alou, who's had a great season at the plate and one in the field at third base as well. He rates as one of the minors' top defenders. He'll tell us how he gets it done. And as always, we'll get VP of Baseball Bobby Scales' thoughts on a variety of baseball topics. Let's get going. So each year we've done this podcast, it seems that we've had some reason to talk about the Dodgers. We always like to talk about the best team in baseball at some point during the year. This year is no different. So we bring in friend of the pod, Jose Moda, Dodger broadcaster, on to talk with us. I also want to talk about Hispanic Heritage Month with him, September 15th through October 15th. But first, all right, what makes this Dodgers team different from other Dodger teams, Jose? Hey, Mark, great to be here with you. Number one is uh, this team is so well-rounded. It's a dynamic team. It's a talented team. And I think what makes it better than other teams as of right now with 103 wins is that if you look at the leaderboards in pretty much every aspect, every dimension, anywhere you look at it collectively and individually, you're going to find a Dodger. And I'm talking about winning percentage. You talk about runs per game. 5.39. You talk about batting average. That's first in the National League. And there's so many firsts. In the, in the major league from slugging, the OPS, I mean, third and home runs. And on top of that, that's great. Okay, we're talking about the offense, right? Then we talk about the pitching. And the team ERA at 2.79, starting pitchers 2.68, and relief pitchers 2.95. I mean, that ranks first or second, not just in the National League, but in all of baseball. And as you know very well, you're very familiar with this topic, catching the baseball preventing runs, and at the same time, tacking on runs. They've done it all in a marvelous, marvelous way so far here. So I feel that there are two ways in which all of this has happened for the Dodgers this season. There's the superstar way, which is the Freddie Freeman, Trey Turner way, which we can certainly speak to. But I wanted to get at the other way, which is the guy who was okay, good, sort of good, maybe kind of, sort of, who has become a major contributor for them. And that's like five or six guys. That's Trace Thompson, Tyler Anderson, Evan Phillips, Andrew Heaney, Tony Gonsolin, all these guys. What have they done to maximize the skills in each of those cases? I think you use the right word already, which is maximize whatever they do well. It doesn't matter what has happened in other organizations. It doesn't matter what words you've heard on a negative side about what you can't do. How about we work with what you can do? What has gotten you to the big leagues? In your flashes of success, what is the one thing that's happening on a consistent basis that just attracts you to it and almost makes you you know, addicted to that type of performance? What is that? Is it, as a pitcher, being more fastball prone? Okay. Is it just following your own philosophy? Is it reading hitters? Is it adding a pitch? How about that one pitch that you had that you haven't developed yet? How, how can we find it and just make you believe that this one pitch is going to make you better? There's a case, for example, of Yancy Almonte. Yancy Almonte 
who has done a fabulous job as a reliever. He's on his way back from injury. But he was a four-pitch guy from Colorado, always threw hard, always had great movement on his fastball. And he comes here, and between, obviously, the, the eyes of the organization, Mark Pryor and especially Connor McGinnis, it's like, hey, wait a minute. We see where your chart was. We see where your misses were. We see where you were falling behind in counts, and then you have to ump it up you know, and throw it down the middle and get hurt. What if we just make you a two-pitch guy? How about that? And he's probably going, what? I thought it was good to have more than two pitches. No, 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 no. Let's simplify it. How about you become a guy that still throws 97 with a sinker and a slider? Now it's going to make home plate, and your chase is much bigger, and that's just a small example. The other one, and to me is more fabulous, is Andrew Heaney who I know very well. I've seen his trajectory as a big leader with the Angels, and I've seen the flashes of very good and also very bad. So the day before the season starts in Colorado this season, he's still in a simulated game, and Connor McGinnis, Mark Pryor, standing there, and they see a slider, and he had a very a bad spring. I mean, terrible, terrible spring. But he's throwing a simulated game, getting ready for his first start of the season, and they say, that slider's not going to play. And all of a sudden, they change his grip. Mark, that's all they did, change his grip. And say, throw it this way and see what happens. And before you know it, different story. Same thing happened with Blake Trinan. But Andrew Haney, to me, is the extreme because the swings and misses, the strikeouts, and just amping up that fastball out of the zone when he needs to are all there right now. What did they do with Evan Phillips? In talking to him a couple of weeks ago, he says, you know, the only thing they did to me was say, you have the arm to get it done. Don't worry so much about missing bats. It's not about the strikeouts. That's going to come naturally because when you start sequencing pitches better and when you start trusting that your ball cuts naturally, that you have a powerful slider, that you have a consistent arm slot, how about we just pound the zone? Pound the zone, have guys anxious to swing the bat, and before we know it, due to the counts that you're going to be gaining, he's getting a lot of 0-1s and turning those into 0-2s, then all of a sudden he can spread and not have to worry about missing or not because naturally guys on the defensive side of the batter's box are going to spread and, and chase pitches. But his pitches are just all look about the same. And that's another – we can spend an hour talking about this. How do you make so many pitches look like strikes and they land as balls? In other words, you're making guys swing a lot of balls out of the zone that initially look like strikes. Talk about going from the bottom to the very, very top. Trace Thompson was on the Tigers and was not on their major league roster earlier in the year, which is, I suppose, somewhat hard to believe, given what he's done in his 60-odd games with the team. I feel like I see him on quick pitch every night. What did they they do to him? He's a very interesting story because one thing that you cannot ignore about the way things are run here with the Dodgers is they love familiar faces and they like to use that talent and not be afraid to say, hey, the first time it didn't work with this guy, let's bring him back. That was a case, obviously, with Trace Thompson. What they saw in Trace Thompson was when Mookie Betts went down, Trace Thompson was brought over from the Detroit Tigers where he had 17 home runs already in in AAA, not even halfway through the year. And what they saw was where his swing was. Obviously, on top of that, he was healthy. You know, the, the health issues that had affected him here early in his career were gone and over with. He started with the Potters this season, did not go very well. He was just was not getting the, you know, consistent reps. And obviously, if you don't play a lot and, and you don't pr- produce, you're not going to find a way to even a place on the bench. That was the case. 
But Trace Thompson took it about himself to refine some things. And I even studied some of his swings before he, when he got traded, I'm like, let me see what happened with this guy. And I'm, I'm looking at his swings in AAA and I'm looking where he's hitting home runs. And I'm like, wow, he is really, really staying inside the baseball and driving the ball and getting more backspin. And with him, it was a matter of doing one or two things. He was brought in when Mookie was hurt for a short term stay initially. He, turn himself into now a very dependent player because you need him. And number three is he's become better at hitting right-handers when initially he was going to be part of a platoon where he's going to be playing more against lefties than against righties. And think about this, his numbers as a Dodger against right-handers are absolutely dominant and just crushes and slug and, and OPS and exit velocity all there. So by changing his swing and using more left center field to the right field line type of approach in AAA, he brought that to the big leagues. And that's one key thing, Mark. He did not change, did not think, okay, now I'm in the big leagues. I got to try to do more. No, he tried to do less, knowing that he had experienced this before. He has faced a failure, and now he adapted well to keeping that swing, exploiting it, and the results are there. 1,000 OPS, uh, better than 1,000 OPS against right-handed pitching. And then the defense. That's You mentioned Mookie Betts before. He's kind of at the head of that. The catchers as well, very strong there with pitch framing, calling a game, all that stuff. How are they so good defensively? Anticipation and not afraid to be different. Anticipation is obviously when you obviously have all the reports, you understand how to prepare, but you know you can't take away the preparation these guys do. And going back to the coaches and going back to you know the analytics department, which is so extensive and so deep here, and just the way it's communicated. It's the way it's communicated to the coaches is easy to translate and translatable to the players. Now, with all that being said, on the defensive side, I've seen some things that perhaps start one way and end up another way. And that's because of Trey Turner, because of Freddie Freeman and Justin Turner. There's some times when in a game you see them start in a different formation, I would say. And then before you know it, they will change it because of what happened in the previous at-bat or what the situation calls for. So it's a combination, obviously, of awareness of, of what the talent brings the IQ, the game IQ, these guys understand and know that they're good ball players, they're star ball players, but they trust their instincts in saying, even though we talked about this type of situation before and this is how it's presented to us and we should showcase this this way, we need to change. And there's some flexibility, not only from them, but in convincing Dave Roberts and the rest of the coaching staff as to why they're going to do it and it's worked for them. I mean, there are countless examples of just being able to just read the flow of the game so defensively you are reading swings you know who's on the mound you have to know velocity you have to know what that pitch is doing you got to know the counts and what to anticipate but certainly it takes a great athlete and a lot of talent to do what they do because they do it on a consistent basis from the outfield Cody Ballinger plays the best center field I've seen in a long long time obviously with the team that I work for and then Mookie Betts is patrolling. He's obviously in center field, but playing right field. And he plays corners. He plays caroms. He's so accurate with his throwing. And let me tell you, it could be a one o'clock game. And these guys are out here working, not just on fly balls. They're working on their footwork. They're working on their angles. They're working on the balls being rolled to them. And they're working on their throwing. So it's no accident. This is not just coincidence. They work at it extensively. They work at it smartly. And they go out there and just trust everything they've done before the game to take it into the game, and it's paid off nicely. A combination of skill and preparation. If they don't win the whole thing, why wouldn't they win the whole thing? The only thing that could really get in their way is on some of these closed ball games. clearly they have not been very good. I'm talking about extra inning games, talking about one-run games, 
for some reason, you go back to last season and <laughs> and that was the case. Lately, they've been a little bit better, but this team really can outplay anybody and do it in a way in which they can go out there and stop any offense with a pitching in their bullpen, catch the baseball. And on the offensive side, it doesn't matter who you bring in for that bullpen. The only thing to get in the way of them, which happened last year in the playoffs, is if the zones get too big, they're a team that takes their walks. They don't chase a whole lot, but hopefully because they're going to see a lot of, trust me, a lot of breaking balls. They're going to see a lot of pitches out of the zone during the, during the postseason. They're going to face number one, two, and threes, and those guys don't mess around in or out of the zone. So the discipline must be carried into the postseason knowing that you're not going to be averaging seven runs a game. There's going to be you know, an outburst here and there, but learn and know that you have to win those close ball games early by getting on the board early and also late. The one thing they'll do is, I guarantee you, they'll get, to get on base and they're going to pressure everybody to go out there and play cleaner baseball. If they, the other team does not, they will open that window and just never stop. I'm curious to see how they'll get, uh, how they might get creative with end of game bullpen management in particular. You're kind of, I think, slightly alluding potentially to that, given Craig Kimbrell's uh, struggles. I want to transition it being Hispanic Heritage Month, having you here, you and your father, Mini Moda. The month started uh, with Roberto Clemente Day in baseball, September 15th. Your father was good friends with Roberto Clemente, great humanitarian. Hall of Fame baseball player, baseball legend, and very renowned for his defense, certainly. What was your father's relationship with him? Oh, they're brothers. I mean, my dad, to this day, uh, misses Roberto. They spent so much time together. He was influential in not only my father as a ball player, but also as a person, uh, as a humanitarian, and caring for the other people, not just uh, outside of baseball, but in that clubhouse, You know, taking care of not just the Hispanics, but being a good teammate, being a guy that you can rely on, being a guy that's there on time to help a teammate have a word and listen and, and give counsel to if needed. Roberto and my dad had such a tight relationship that there's times when Roberto would ask my dad almost to coach him. You know, there's times when Roberto would misplay a ball in the outfield, very rare case, and he took so much pride in that. And he asked my dad, hey, man, I need you tomorrow at two o'clock. We're going to go out there and I'm going to have a couple of buckets. And you're going to hit me some balls against the Karen because I misplayed it last night. And that was one example. There are times where Roberto would actually come down. And, and I remember this as a kid. Roberto would fly from Puerto Rico to Dominican and say, man, it's, it's raining too much here. I've got to go down there and, and stay ready for spring training. So he would fly down to the Dominican <laughs> for a day or two, spend time with mom and dad, eat his favorite food, bring his family down. But he wanted to work out and just make sure that uh, he always kept tabs on my dad. And I'll tell you, the most, the, the most remarkable story that my dad ever told me was that there was a time in which the rosters needed to be trimmed in April into May from like 28 to 25 or something like that. And my dad was in the bubble one time with the Pirates. And Roberto came in on the last day. My dad was supposed to be cut and send to AAA the next day. And Roberto went into the manager's office and said, listen, don't do it. You, you're going to regret it. If he sent Manny Mota down, you're going to regret it. He's on the verge of becoming a very good baseball player. And who knows what would have happened if my dad gets sent down that day, but Roberto's the one who said, don't do it. I know baseball. I know him. And not just because he's a friend, this guy's going to be a very fine ball player. And I can always say thank you, Roberto, for that. And obviously, I do have some memories with he and, and Manny Sanguian. But for baseball to celebrate number 21, Roberto Clemente Day is, is absolutely marvelous, more than deserved. I, I would like to see one day when 21 is retired. I think this has been fought for for so many years and generations. But I think the time is now. The Pittsburgh Pirates, I really commend for what they've done through the seasons and also for you know their, their manager, Derek Shelton, taking charge and saying, not only are we going to 
have the option of wearing 21. Everybody's going to wear 21 for the Pittsburgh Pirates that day. And I think those are things that speak highly to what the Latinos represent and how much I represent in baseball. And anybody listening to this, I am a little biased because I'm Latino. Okay. But go look at a major league roster right now of your favorite team and then go and expand to the leaderboard and then go expand to the leagues and look at the leaders and look at the composition of rosters. And you tell me how much Latin American baseball players mean to major league baseball. And then when you have time, go look at minor league rosters and tell me during the trading deadline, how many Hispanic prospects you saw being traded for star players and why they value them so much. If you can, just to, to close here, who are the, the Hispanic players of 2022 that are stepping up and taking the lead in terms of leadership in the way that you just talked about? Albert Pujols is number one for me. I mean, Albert's such a terrific story. <laughs> what he's doing right now is what nobody expected. But I am one that always said when he was with the Angels, never doubt number five. Julio Urias. Julio Urias has won more games than any pitcher in baseball since the beginning of last year. Nobody talks about this kid. How do you win 20 games last year? The only player pitcher in the major leagues to win 20 games and not even come in the top three in Cy Young. Explain that to me. So let's show and showcase a talent like this that's survived a lot of adversity since he was a child with his eye issues to the arm issues that he faced in the big leagues. And the Dodgers know very well how much they value him because without him, they don't win the World Series in 2020. And Julio Diaz should be getting exposed more to, obviously, what he's done in the big leagues. And there are so many other players. Adamas, 30 home runs. That's more than Robin Yount for the Brewers. I mean, time and time again, you see more of these stories that you just go, wow, that is absolutely remarkable. And I'm so grateful that I can see this and expose them to obviously be known a little bit more in, in whatever level they're playing at because they deserve it. What, what about in a leadership role? Like I, I was thinking Francisco Lindor was the first one that I thought of. Oh, Lindor, he's, he's naturally a leader. I mean, uh, Javi Baez himself had a, having a bad year. He's a leader. Miguel Cabrera. I mean, guys like that are just outstanding for the game all the way around. Uh, Jose Ramirez is a leader out there in Cleveland. Think about what the Guardians are doing. <laughs> and he's the guy that leads that ship. I mean, if you're ever around the Guardians and next to that dugout, and I've experienced it many times. Just go look at the energy Jose Ramirez brings every single game and his team is rubbed off on that. And I mean, I'm going to be missing some names here, but there's no doubt they do such a good job. Language barrier or not, these Hispanic players do a whole lot for baseball. And obviously, it's a nice mix because they understand that this is their livelihood and what they need to do to go out there and perform and stay alive. And I can only applaud what they do. But uh, I'm glad you bring that leadership because obviously a guy like Lindor means a whole lot to that team. And playing that position demands a lot. In that city, especially, he is absolutely remarkable. Jose Moda, thank you for taking the time to join us. And thank you for taking the time to educate us on these good stories that you shared. Thank you. Thank you for always being on top and allowing us to expand our view more on what happens in baseball between the white lines. Because obviously, between the white lines, it is the toughest job, my friend. You be well. Thank you. We're joined by Washington Nationals prospect and AAA infielder Jake Alou. We don't do minor league fielding Bible awards. We do them for the major leagues. But if we did, Jake would be a very strong contender for one. He's the leader at third base for defensive runs saved in the minor leagues. Just saw him the other day making a nice play at second base, as a matter of fact. And by the way, since getting recalled to AAA in the middle of the season, he's hitting over 300 double figures in home runs. He's currently on a hot streak. Really impressive right now. Jake, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So a little more info here. You were a senior sign, 24th round pick out of Boston College from Hamilton, New Jersey. You're 25. Walk us through how this season has played out for you. 
it's been a great season. Started out in Double A in Harrisburg. Kind of, I had pretty, oh, I had okay season last year hitting wise, and kind of like fell right back into that right in the beginning. And then I started, you know, like working more counts. So last year I actually had twenty one or twenty two walks on the season, which is kind of small. So I started kind of waiting around for my pitch, so pitch that I could do damage on rather than just putting the ball in play. So I think offensively, that was one of the big steps that I had this year was not necessarily swinging at, at strikes, but waiting for a pitch that I can slug, that I can do damage on rather than just putting the ball in play. And what about defensively? So defensively, last year, I had some. I played third base when I got up to double A a lot rather than second base. I was having some trouble, you know, getting the ball over to first base with some, some oomph on the ball. And when I did do that, I kind of sailed it or... You know, I was kind of, I wasn't very accurate with the arm. So this offseason, one of the big things I focused on was I was going down to Florida, worked with Mark Harris, who's one of our coordinators, and kind of kind of worked on throwing motion, worked on first step quickness, first step, like defensively, like good third base is a lot about footwork and just getting yourself in a good position to feel the ball because the ball comes at you hot. So that was one of the biggest things that I worked on and, you know, hopefully and showed this year. So when I say that you're the minor league defensive run save leader at third base, does it feel like you've had a really good year? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely I definitely feel like I've had a better year this year defensively. And I want to say I feel a lot more comfortable, whether that's having more reps over there or whatever it is. I do feel like when I go out there, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm not letting this ball by me or uh, I'm going to make a good play right here rather than worrying about being in the right place at the right time or having good footwork. It's it's kind of just comes natural from the work from this offseason and, and just all the reps that I've had this year. Now, usually our first question is simply, what's your defense origin story? And I want you to take us back as far as you can go. And if that's Little League, and you were, you played in a very noteworthy Little League, Nottingham Little League in Hamilton Township, in Hamilton Township, New Jersey, that is very intense. I'm curious where your defensive work started. Yeah, I'd probably say Nottingham Little League. We were known to be the powerhouse. So, you know, we had to live up to our name and, and we were out there practicing for hours on end. And when we went home, all the guys on the team, we all went to one of our buddies' houses and we were playing wiffle ball in the backyard. So we, we loved baseball. We were That's probably my, the origin of the defense. And obviously, I, I think going when I was at Boston College, you know, our, our, we usually have one of the top defenses in the ACC every year. So I mean, we're out there every day. We're always taking ground balls and, and we, we take a look at the, the fine lines of the work and, and the nitty gritty parts rather than just taking ground balls every day. We work on short hops and, and just the, the little things that when you get to pro ball, you can tell that you could tell that you're a little more refined in that sense of, of the game. Can you take us back to a particularly good defensive play that you made, just one that you remember from either a little league or travel ball or high school? So we were actually, we, I, I remember we were, I was playing second base and my, my buddy Mike Salvatore, who's with the Mariners, he, we were at the Penn State, I think uh, the Cardinals affiliate as well, Penn State field for like a travel ball tournament. And we did, I did a backhand up the middle and I glove flipped it to him and he barehanded it and threw it first for a double play. That was like first time that I've ever done something like that, like you see on TV all the time. And you always want to do as a kid. I think I was probably around like 13 or 14, so or like 14 years old. So that was a fun one. That was one I definitely won't forget. We always talk about it. 
What was the transition like, double A to triple A, defensively for you? I think it was pretty similar, to be honest. I, I, I you know, I start like I said earlier. I started feeling a little more comfortable over at third base this year rather than the the previous. So right, I mean, probably before I got called up is when I started to feel like good and and I kind of just transitioned right into third base and you know just made the out. Like that's basically one of the things that I talked about. One of our coaches this offseason was was at the end of the day just make the out like doesn't have to look pretty it doesn't you know you don't have to be in the right position every time it doesn't have to be perfect but put the ball in a glove throw it to their glove before the runner touches the base you know so i read an article that said that you describe yourself sometimes as a no tools player what tool is your strongest tool i i think oh man i don't know you put me in position <laughs> but i it's funny because that's a not like a joke but my college coach my my freshman year he he that's Everything that he said to me every single day, he was first guy. As soon as I got out to the field, he goes, there's the no tools baseball player. You know, he knew he knew I was a grinder of a player and it just kind of caught on for, for many years after that, I guess now too. <laughs> so what, so what is, what is your best defensive tool? I'd say, I don't know. I just, everything. I, I mean, I, I just want to be good at everything, I guess. So what's your pregame prep like? I kind of do the same thing every day. I just, I hang out with the guys like pregame and, and then I go out to the field and I actually bounce a ball off off like just a regular baseball off the wall for like two or three minutes and just get little short hops into my glove. But to just to, you know, just kind of feel your hands working a little bit. I just have my headphones in and I'm doing it. And it's not really it's something that I've done like all the time. But it's just something that I feel like it just kind of gets my eyes and my, my hands ready for the game. What kind of data do they give you to help prepare? We don't get a lot of defensive data. It kind of goes off of, you know, what some of our, our infield coordinators see and, you know, our coaches see, like we'll have Augie Aguilar, who's our infield coordinator, come down for a few series. He watches videos all the time. He'll text us and be like, maybe get a little more more down on your pre-step just because it seems like you're a little, del- you might be like a step behind because you're not in a good ready position or just stuff like that. So it's not unnecessarily like defensive data, but more of like what is seen to the eye. How does your size come into play in terms of how you play? Yeah, I've never been been the biggest guy. So, you know, I always had to feel like I had to play bigger almost. So, like, I, I, I that's been a thing my entire life. So I've kind of gotten used to, to just being able to handle my own. And I have to, you know, maybe sometimes if I want to hit for more power, I got to work a little bit harder, lift a little bit more, find something else in my swing that, same on the defensive side. I mean, you see a lot of third basemen, bigger guys, bigger power guys. And if you want to compete with them, you got to be able to, to you know, do the same thing. What coaches have influenced them, you the most in terms of how you play defense? One of my pro ball coaches is Mark Harris. And, you know, I love the terminology he uses with infield and just like some of the stuff, it, it really like settles in with me well. Like I, I understand it and I kind of get what he's saying. The way he plays the game, like he was, like he said, he was a shorter guy too and and he's just he's just he seems like a grinder to me and a guy like who who's similar to me and then also my college coach Mike Gambino he's always always he another same similar type player that I was and he he got on me to be to be the best defensive player and and best player baseball player that I could be for sure so all right let's segue to hitting and base running because I do want to touch on those because your numbers have jumped pretty nicely in those areas as well you maxed out at four home runs at Boston College so how did you change your hitting approach to get to where uh, 20 is is in your realm 
See, I, you know, people like I've been asked that question a lot, and and I think that like I, I don't want to be the guy that says, but I think as time like when you get older, home runs come. I mean, I will say I will say one of the biggest things, like I said earlier in this chat, was that I waited. I've been waiting for pitches. I've I feel like I have really good bat to ball skills. That's helped me be a hitter like throughout my baseball career. But it also I see this year that it kind of negatively affected me because there's balls that I shouldn't have swung at that are strikes that, you know, it's still early in the count that I could put in play, but I'm just not going to do any damage with them, whether it's like a single or flare, you know, something like that, that, that I can't really slug with. But now I'm kind of taking those pitches and I'm, and I'm, I'm waiting for that pitch where, you know, I could hit a ball in the gap or I could pull a ball or hit a ball backside or something I could drive. So I think offensively hitting wise, that's something that, you know, I really took, took pride in this year. And then I was going to say from a base running standpoint, I really, you know, I felt like I could have done a better job base running this year. I look back at my season last year and whether it wasn't bad, it just, you know, I, I, I wanted to, you know, get that extra base or, or go first to third on those ones. And just, you know, I just wanted to be like a factor on the bases and whether I'm not like, you know, this, this burner, you could definitely like change the game with, with how you run the bases. I was going to ask about your base running because you do have a good number of steals this year. 13. Are you like a sneaky base stealer or are you just kind of a, a someone who, you know, who reads things well? I would say I, I, I read things. I, you know, I, I really study the pitchers a lot, like their pickoff moves and their tendencies. However, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a burner. So I'm not just going to get on base, first base every time and, and, and swipe a bag. So I really, you know, like I look at the pitch count. I, I see like their tendencies. They'll throw like an all speed this count or the throw one out of the zone, try to get like the swinger to chase. So that's a time that, you know, like I'll take my chances if, if the numbers are right. What was life with the pitch clock like? Because we've been hearing a lot about that with it coming to Major League Baseball. Yeah, it, that changes from a base running standpoint. I've definitely noticed is, you know, you see that clock going down, you know, the pitcher's kind of like rushing to get that pitch off. So you can maybe get a little bit better of a jump when that clock's on like going down to zero seconds and I've definitely, you know, I've definitely taken a few bases like that this year. I've seen other guys take a few bases like that. So that's definitely going to be a factor next year for sure. That's cool. I didn't even think of that. I keep thinking of yeah. it in terms of the pitcher-hitter matchup. Have you tracked what Joey Manessis has done since he's gotten called up to the major leagues? Oh, yeah, he's awesome. When I first got uh, called up to uh, AAA, he was right next to me in the locker room, and we talked a lot. And he's just, he's such a great guy. You're just pulling for him, and he's he's an unbelievable hitter. and you know, it's really good to see. It's really good to see. I liked, you know, I liked hitting around him in the lineup because he protected me a lot. So I got <laughs> some pitches to hit. Does he give you kind of like an inspiration as someone who's going to be 26 next year that he made it a 30? Yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody has their time and it definitely gives you inspiration. And, and you know, I'm sure he'll be around for a very long time. He's finally done it for himself and finally got noticed for, for the numbers that he's been putting up and yeah, so it's definitely a motivating thing, and and I, you know, I would love to get up there and help the Nats turn things around and get us in the playoffs and stuff. So, yeah. So in midseason, Fangraphs ranked you as the Nats' number sixteen prospect. The guy who wrote the report, Eric Longenhagen, who's an SIS alum, was looking for more power from you. You've shown that, and he said, if you can incorporate defensive versatility into your game, you'll have a consistent place on a big league roster. You've done that because you've shown that you can play second and you can play third. With that in mind, what are you going to do this off season to even build upon everything that you've done? Like I said, I mean, there's always things to work on, and I think for me this year, I've 
there's times where I'm a pitch behind in an at-bat. So basically what I mean by that is is when I'm hitting, sometimes I feel, you know, if I took that one pitch, I'd be in a better count to hit rather than being in a two-strike at-bat or, you know, swing at something bad or some pitches that I should take that I sh- shouldn't have swung at, like just stuff like that. And then defensively, I'm going to go down to Florida uh, to the complex in January and I'm going to be working with, with, with the infield guys there and, you know, same thing, I think getting in the outfield too, and just anything I can do, like help the team, you know, and get on that big league club. I'm definitely going to go all in to do. Last question. Something fun. I think, are you really on TikTok? Oh yeah. I got a, during COVID, I, I, me and my buddies, we got a little, we got a little TikTok action. And you got viral. Yeah. Oh yeah. We were, we were killing it for a little bit there. It was all fun. Right. All right. So tell us about the, the, to close out here, tell us about the golf shot that went viral. Oh, so that was my one of my buddies, KJ. We it was a rainy day, so we were on the course one of our off days, and you know he's not you know he's not the greatest of golfers, but you know sometimes when when he gets it out, like he'll swing really hard and get it out there, and you know maybe get a ball in the fairway sometimes. But his back foot slipped because it was a little rainy day, and hit a ball right into the ground, probably about an inch off the tee, <laughs> and it plugged into the ground. It was it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. 650,000 people apparently agreed because that's so many people saw it on TikTok. Very impressive. Yeah. We close with Jake Alu. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your pursuit of a major league career. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by Bobby Scales, VP of Baseball for Sports Info Solutions in his regular spot here on the podcast. And I know what Bobby wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the stars of the game. No bigger star this year than Aaron Judge approaching Roger Maris. 60 home runs, matches Babe Ruth. One of the all-time, all-timer seasons. And September, he's taken it to another level. What has intrigued you most and impressed you most in this run by Aaron Judge? Well, first of all, Mark, it's always a pleasure to be on with the legend that is Mark Simon. So I'm just uh, renting space in this podcast. But anyway, no, in all seriousness, we, we, we talked about last time I was on, I believe we touched on, you know, just how great Aaron Judge season was and just how great Shohei Otani is. I still stand on that. But just since last time we've been on, Aaron Judge doing what he's doing is absolutely phenomenal on so many levels for me. We know you being a New Yorker and a, and a rabid New York Mets fan, we know how difficult it is to function in the environment, in the cauldron that is New York City, in any sporting capacity. We've seen across all sporting landscapes, really good players come to New York, fail, and leave and go elsewhere and continue to be really good players. So there's something to that. He is thirty playing his 30-year-old season. He will be 31 in April. He's in a walk year. There's contract stuff surrounding him. I mean, this he's not he's not new to being a good player. I mean, he was guy was an all star last year. Got finished fourth MVP voting. This is not new for him. But to kick it up another level to where he has for a team who is in first place, who would not be in first place had it not been for Aaron Judge, is as absolutely astronomical. And if you look at the numbers, we're a data company. We're going to look at the numbers, of course, as well. What he's done late in the season, you, 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 you threw the numbers at me earlier off the air going into August. I mean, since, since till, till right now that we're taping on the 22nd of September and going into September, raised his average. I know batting average, jackety schmackety. I get it. 
he still raised his average 22 points with all the at-bats he's had is abs- it's it's it is so difficult to do that at that point in the season. A lot of times you get to September and guys talk about this guys, you get into September, you get into late August. Hey man, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to get my hits, but it, my, my numbers are what they are at this point. You know, the only ones you can really move a lot are, you know, maybe the homers or, or what have you possibly RBIs. If some guys get hot in front of you, whatever. No, 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 no. He's raised his average 22 points in 22 days with probably 400 plus at bats. Incredible. That tells you how hot he's been. And not only that, everything he's touched has been a double or a homer in, in, in the last four to five weeks, which is just unbelievable, too. It's crazy. Add to the fact he plays a physical game. He got very lucky the other night that his hand kind of rolled up under him on that dive, on that play he made in right field when he dove for that ball. Because if that glove goes the other way, we got real problems. But thank, thankfully for him and quite frankly for baseball, it didn't. And he kind of escaped that. But the guy plays a physical game. Here's another piece, too. He's a, very, he's a good base runner. He's got he's got 16 bags this year, only been thrown out three times. Complete baseball players. You will hear me say this every time I have a mic in front of my face. I love complete baseball players. And for him to do this in this season, it's unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking at a at a, at a stats page right now, leading the league in runs scored, leading the league in homers, leading the league in RBIs. I know old traditional stats. I get it. Don't care. He's still leading the leagues. He's leading the leagues in walks leading the league in batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging, and OPS, and OPS+. plus, Complete baseball player. I love it. I love every second of it. I don't know how much he's going to make. It's not going to be as much as some because of the simple fact he's on the wrong side of 30, but this guy is tremendous. He towers over Paul Goldschmidt, both size-wise and stat-wise, and Goldschmidt was a contender for the National League Triple Crown, has an OPS over 1,000, has had a crazy year as well, but Aaron Judge just dwarfs everybody else. We take the stats and we look at them from a career perspective, and Albert Pujols is on the verge of 700 home runs. I think a lot of people are really hoping that he gets it before the end of the season, because that will be it for Albert Pujols. Before the season started, Bill James Tool, the favorite toy, said Albert Pujols had a 53% chance of getting to 700. We're in the final two weeks. He's right there. What's impressed you most about him? How Albert is doing it. This is 20, year 22. Is that correct? I think that's right. I actually played against Albert in the Midwest League in 2000 when he started the season in Peoria, Illinois, and had like 19 home runs in six weeks. So they moved him out. Fun fact for you guys out there. But Albert, how he's doing it for me, and this is what I really appreciate. Okay. People say athletes are mindless. People say athletes are this or that. He has a level of intelligence and knowledge about one himself to the craft of hitting and three, what other teams are trying to do to him that is beyond PhD. This is dojo sensei level knowledge. Okay. Because you'll watch him now. He's doing, yeah. People say, yeah, he's doing a lot of his damage against left-handed pitching. True. Got 19 home runs. He's got seven home runs against right-handed pitching, not hitting for a great average, but when he gets his hits, they're extra base hits, typically speaking against, against right-handed pitching. Okay. The only way you do this, and this is this is something that you have, this is more psychological than human performance, okay? He understands, I think he's come in the last couple of years, he's come to an understanding and a realization of where he is physically and who he is as a hitter. I think there were some years in, in LA where he still thought he was this mid, mid-St. Louis Albert Pujols. And clearly the physical, his, you know, the physicality of the game and his own physical abilities were declining, as they do when we age, father time is undefeated. 
But what's happening, and it doesn't mean he wasn't intelligent then. I think he was still in a tug of war in his mind as to who he was. The last few years, he has realized, this is who I am. This is what I can do. These are the pitches I can handle. And I got to put myself in a position to get those pitches so then I can do damage. Case in point, there's a couple there, there. You know, you look through his at bats, you look through the home runs, especially the extra base hits. There are times he is absolutely swinging at pitches that Albert Pujols doesn't swing at, but he's doing so because he knows that guy out there has a plan. He understands that guy's plan probably better than the pitcher and the catcher combined because of the sensei level knowledge he has about the game. If I swing at this pitch right here, he's coming back with this. And when he comes back with this, I'm going to be ready for him. And I, it's unbelievable to watch this man work right now because that is exactly what he's doing. And, and just I, these are the things, not just not just numbers. I appreciate the numbers, too, because if I didn't, quite frankly, I wouldn't be here where I am. But these are the small things, the cat and mouse games, the psychological, the, the, the psychological warfare, if you if you will. The the opportunity to outsmart an opponent. These are the things that I absolutely adore about the game of baseball. That that one on one back alley matchup. We're we're in a back alley. It's me and you. That this is this is what hitting is. We're in a back alley. It's me and you. You got a broken bottle, and only one of us is going to leave. And, and it's that matchup four times a night on a nightly basis for seven months out of the year. And that eighth month is the most important month. You know where where we, where where the rubber meets the road. And I, I, you know, that's the playoffs. And I, this, this is what, this is the purity of this game for me. And I absolutely adore it. Albert Pujols is his, his knowledge, his intelligence and, and his ability to quite frankly, have come to grips with where he is physically and make the adjustments and just use his superior brain to overcome them is, is next, next, it's not even next level. It's, this is Everest level stuff for me right now. And that for me is a beautiful thing. So there are two sides to the mental game that I was just thinking about there. One is the aspect that you talked about with the tricking pitchers. And I've heard stories about Barry Bonds doing that as well. As you've said, all the great hitters do that. I'm also thinking about the, I guess it's kind of like, what would you call it? Like the flow state or being relaxed. Are you noticing that he's like relaxed at the plate that he's able to to just do his thing because, hey, he knows this is the end kind of aspect to it? Mark, that's a fantastic point. I, I think that there's two pieces of that. When you when you are a superior athlete and superior performer as he was for so long in his career, I think that flow state comes from a level of confidence knowing you can do it. There's a supreme level of confidence that you can dominate your opponent. I think to your point, I think now he's at a, at a he's a, he's such he's so at ease with where he is as a human and as a player that. Yeah, hey, this is it. We're gonna go out. We're gonna have fun. I'm gonna do this. Yeah, I'm gonna you. You know, I'm still smart. I'm still able to com- to compete and do these things. But I think he's so at ease with where he is as a human being and his career and the things he's accomplished and just where he is in life that it allows you to have that freedom. I think Albert is at such peace with where he is as a human, as a ball player. Looking back on his career, I mean, you just look at the speech he said. You know, he 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 uh, he delivered inside the clubhouse at the All Star game. That is a man at peace. Uh, with his entire career, that is a man at peace with who he is as a human, and and to that end, it brings tremendous clarity and, and ability to go out and perform. And I just remember my last year playing in 2012. Clearly, I wasn't <laughs> nowhere near the player Albert Pujols was, but again, you still feel that peace. I had a buddy tell me he said, "Look, man, he goes, this is your last year. You know, you've done this for a long time. Go out and play like we, when we were kids and we played wiffle ball in the street against those other kids from the other neighborhood." And, you know, it was funny because like, you don't, you don't, 
you're so far from that age wise, but then you have you, you think about how much fun that was as a kid. And I think that's where Albert I, I can't speculate. I don't know the man. I dealt with him a few times when I was in L.A. working and he was playing. But I can only speculate from my own perspective that I, that it, it seems on the field and it seems is to that's where that's where he is. And that's why he's probably just allowing himself to have such success this year. Awesome. Bobby Scales, VP of Baseball, SIS. Thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. This wraps up this episode. Thanks to Jose Moda, Jay Kalu, and our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, and our producer, Justin Stein. You can follow us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball and read our work online at sportsinfosolutions.com. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.